Hi, this is Eric Gurna, President and CEO of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna, and I'm here in Cambridge, Massachusetts with Dr. Nancy Rappaport, who, in addition to being a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist, is also an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Nancy. So happy to be here. So just to talk a little bit more about what you do, because I think you have a really interesting and diverse, um, not only history, but your, your current work is also diverse. Um, in addition to teaching undergraduates, medical students, and residents about child development, you also supervise child psychiatry fellows in local schools, and your research, teaching, and clinical expertise focus on the collaboration between education and psychiatry. Um, but what was really the most interesting thing to me um, that I saw in, in reading about you is that um, you spent some time working as a science teacher yourself at an innovative elementary school in Harlem. I think that's one of the hardest jobs I had and the most rewarding. It was teaching preschool through third graders. And mm -hmm. I was able to appreciate how much teachers, youth workers have to be quick on their feet and resourceful and that it can sometimes be exhausting. And that in some ways gave me street cred when I work in the schools mm -hmm. that I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm not, uh, completely oblivious to the kinds of inordinate uh, multitasking that people have to do when they're working with uh, children who may have challenging behavior. Yeah, and that, that is often the, the accusation that's thrown at university uh, professors and others who teach teachers, right, is that they, they're not, they don't have a sense of the reality of the day-to-day. And some people might still argue that I that I have high expectations for teachers in terms of how we can reach these kids. Mm -hmm. But 
I hope that hopefully it's both uh, with a tremendous sense of admiration for what teachers do. Mm-hmm. And you, you currently still work in school-based health clinics? Yes, I've been working at a school-based health center for, uh, that's based in a local high school for over 20 years, working with the highest-risk kids. And I also do uh, safety assessments on children who and diagnostic assessments in a, um, for those students identified in a school that um, educators may be really struggling with. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in the trenches. <laughs> And I became familiar with you through a recent Washington Post uh, article that we're going to get to in a moment. But before we, we do, um, you've also written a couple of books. Um, you authored an award-winning memoir, and as well as uh, your more recent book, uh, The Behavior Code, A Practical Guide to Understanding and Teaching the Most Challenging Students, which you wrote with behavior analyst Jessica Minahan. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me when I saw that book was uh, it's a practical guide to understanding and teaching. Um, you know, we often see, uh, when we're talking about the most challenging students, we often hear managing behavior, reaching them, certainly teaching them, instructing. But you emphasized understanding. That makes me happy that that jumped out at you because the understanding is what allows us then to have the patience and the motivation to try to reach kids. Children are remarkably perceptive, and if they sense that you think that they're manipulative or uh, trying to get away with something or the kinds of terms that sometimes get thrown at kids with challenging behavior, Mm -hmm. they're going to dig their heels in, and you're not going to make progress. Mm -hmm. But if you come from a place of of compassion and humor and warmth, and that's what the – that we're trying to say is – understand the child and then and that understanding is embedded in being a detective so that's the whole part about the behavior code uh, aspect that that try to see behavior as communication and Mm -hmm. try if you understand the behavior as a communication and then can respond that you're going to make huge progress and and i think we're going to get back into that a little bit um to hear more about how what you see as the like the proactive approaches, mm-hmm. but what really brought us together was this article from from June fourth in the Washington Post, uh, which is I don't know if you gave it this headline or if they did. They the, did. <laughs> the, the headline was, and and maybe you know I'd love to hear if you're happy with the headline or if, if you think it might be an oversimplification. The headline is we are over medicating America's poorest kids, and that really jumped out at me when I saw it because this is a this is an issue that I've been um, concerned about for a long time and was actually hoping to get someone who I could talk to about this on, on Please Speak Freely. Um, but it's a complicated one. Right. So I did not write the title, yeah. um, <laughs> but I can understand that the Washington Post is, is excellent in being able to figure out a way to Grab people's attention. Grab eyeballs. I, I, they say. And, and yeah. is that what they say? I, I love think that. So. <laughs> Grab eyeballs. Um, well, they and and my heart sunk a little bit when I read the headline because mm. I was totally in the article and in my life trying to give a balanced view about the role of medication when it's appropriate, but also that there is a line crossed. And then I was particularly compelled to write this because it was about the CDC report that was saying that. Toddlers, children three years and and two years old, were being treated with stimulants without having had a uh, um, 
therapy or parent management training. So this is such a clear line of poor medicine and no uh, um, pediatric guidelines would support that. So mm-hmm. it was it was it was an easier place for me to sound the alarm and yeah. say that we uh, and the data was so, showing that poor kids were more likely to get this. This was in, in Georgia. So I, I'm glad that we got together to have this important discussion because it deserves uh, a nuanced understanding of it. Mm-hmm. So, but is the, is the general idea, does the evidence show that um, poor kids, economically poorer kids are prescribed um, the kind like stimulants, um, at a higher rate than, than other kids? There is data that shows that some, if you're, this is where it gets complicated. If Mm -hmm. you're a, a, a poor child, you may, first of all, getting access to a really good diagnostic assessment could be tough Mm -hmm. because, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of child psychiatrists. There's only 8,000 in the country, and there's 80,000 uh, public schools. So you can do the numbers mm. of how tough it is to get to mm-hmm. uh, um, a ch- child psychiatrist. Uh, and so if you get a poor diagnostic assessment or just a diagnostic assessment that's not that sophisticated, there may be a quick fix mentality that we just we have to give a medication because there's long lines to get access to uh, better therapy, and we're going to see if we can just stop the flood by giving medication. Mm-hmm. So sometimes poor children may be medicated for symptoms that actually would be better managed by, say, having parent management training. But where I'm hesitant, even though I'm totally committed to us not over-medicating kids, is I don't want to get into the blame game. Because the the challenge is that sometimes also you may have families where it's problematic to go to once a week therapy to get your parent, you know, to get tips on how to uh, um, respond to your child's behavior in ways that might settle them down. At the same time, we've been coming up with more innovative programs, nurse family partnerships, home-based therapy, and that Mm -hmm. can help accommodate some of the challenges that poor families may have in being able to get to, to get the services they need that will adequately address it. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to these kinds of drugs, in especially in younger children, like you were mentioning, two and three years old, and that's a little bit shocking to me. You know, as a father shocking. of a two-year-old, I can't imagine. It's it's that's absurd, and I would be really clear to any listeners: if yeah. you have a two or three-year-old that's on a stimulant, you should go find another doctor. Mm. So that's 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 across that's that's a line that's crossed where yeah. you should get a second opinion because that's not uh, appropriate medicine. But we get into much grayer areas. Yeah. So if you have a school-age child and they're having trouble concentrating in school and they're um, they're not focused, uh, and it could be you have a family history of attention deficit disorder, uh, you um, you have scales that have been given to the teacher. That's a that's a fairly straightforward. We should give mm-hmm. probably it might be useful to have along with organizational strategies a stimulant, but. Then you might get into a grayer area, which is the areas that I tend to work a lot with in schools, where you have a child who may have had trauma growing up between zero and five years old, and also may have problems with impulsivity and attentional difficulties. So 
making that diagnostic decision about when a stimulant might be helpful can be uh, a, a difficult process. And my um, core belief is that you look at function. So if a child is really struggling in school and a stimulant's going to be a make or break, uh, I think the whole debate that's going on right now is is unnecessary. Uh, but if you sometimes give a stimulant to a child and then you get a false sense of confidence that you've addressed it or you start to um, mess around with the dosing of it because the child's not responding and then maybe you add in something else or you decide that now it's a mood disorder and you don't carefully structure the school to support the student, that's a travesty. What do we know about the longer-term effects of these medications well, on, on young children? So there's a, so depending on what class we're talking about, meaning class, meaning you know what uh, they call it, like the, the the family of the medic, you know the the drug class, means the type of drug, the type of drug. Uh-huh. So if you're talking, thank you, <laughs> if you're talking about uh, antidepressants, uh, what happened back in 2004 is that there was a warning that uh, it's called a black box warning that mm-hmm. if you give a child an antidepressant, that there's a chance that they could become more suicidal. Mm. Now, that uh, set off some unintended consequences, probably, where, and again, this is where the whole discussion is nuanced, where probably some children who actually would benefit from an antidepressant, parents, doctors, got afraid to prescribe it, Mm -hmm. and... There's been some discussion about whether the, the recent increase in suicide attempts in teenagers is, um, it's definitely, it's not clear if it's been caused by it, but it's in association with a decrease in antidepressants. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is, it's important when you have a child on an antidepressant or a teenager on an antidepressant to monitor so that if there is increased suicidality, that you stop the medication, talk to the doctor, try to figure it out, make sure that the child's safe. But parents are in this really tough place where they may have, usually when you're thinking about giving an antidepressant to a teenager, you're doing it because uh, the the child's suicidal and has Mm -hmm. stopped functioning. So this, this is the, the razor edge that I'm trying to, to explain to, to us is some situations an antidepressant could make a child worse or it could be a quick fix when what you really need to do is be uh, addressing the peer relationships and the um, school academic curriculum and that's going to really catapult a child forward. Mm-hmm. Other times it's a biological depression and you need to give them an antidepressant and that could be life-saving. Mm-hmm. So that's one class, mm-hmm. antidepressants. Stimulants, the side effects... Uh, are sometimes weight loss, which can be managed. Uh, sometimes um, a small change in the growth of like a quarter of an inch or half an inch uh, over the child's lifetime. Sometimes if you don't have a child with uh, sort of hardcore attentional difficulties, you can um, have times when you don't need a child to be focused, that you don't give them a stimulant, which allows them to sort of catch up. So weekend, summers, you don't give medications. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rarely you can see um, more disorganization or um, tough time, 
with with an with a stimulant but again that's super rare we where um and uh the other class of medications that's given for bipolar disorder and sometimes with children who have uh, autism with problems with impulsivity and aggression is antipsychotics that's an area antipsychotics are you are given in adults your listeners would recognize that for schizophrenia mm-hmm. uh there is concern that there's been a fairly dramatic increase in antipsychotics for children. And that's, again, that's where the discussion is nuanced. That's where I have stronger feelings about giving that medication and where there needs to be uh, a lot of work done to, to make sure that the medication is being given appropriately. Because uh, sometimes antipsychotics, what they do is they decrease the aggression in kids, which can be fairly significant. I do safety assessments in schools, and you can have kids that are throwing chairs or um, hitting people uh, and doing really combative kinds of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And a antipsychotic may end up shifting that kind of aggression. And it could... Uh, antipsychotics are used for children who have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And... Um, but what we don't know about antipsychotics is the long-term sequela. So we know that it does... Long-term what? Long-term outcome. Okay. So we know that there is a greater risk for weight gain. We know that there is a risk sometimes for uh, diabetes down the road uh, and for increased cholesterol. So to me, an antipsychotic is a heavy gun. Mm-hmm. Or it, it, and, and, to, and something that we really want to be extremely cautious about using. And that's the area where um, I would want the public to become increasingly more vigilant about. It's so, it's so much. Like mm-hmm. it, I'm already sort of oh, overwhelmed sorry. with all the, okay. you the know, terminology. It's not just the terminology. It's also, there's, it's so complicated. The issues okay. are so complicated, right? Um, if we could get back just a little bit to the stimulants, could you, w- yep. um, when you say stimulants, what are the names of some of the, the medications that would be examples of that? Because I feel like those are the ones that a lot of uh, people so, who work in schools and programs sure. will recognize. So you might hear Adderall, right. Ritalin, Focalin. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are the names that you'd probably hear. And I think that, um, you know, the the term ADD or attention deficit disorder, it's become almost a... I don't know what you would call it. I'm going to say like a catchphrase or a, throwaway or a joke. Term. People, yeah. it's it's strange what becomes a joke, right? Yeah. So people say that oh, I have ADD or yeah. oh, I have Alzheimer's. Like right. it's like yeah. um, like it's funny. Yeah. Like oh, I'm a little forgetful yeah. or right. it's hard for me to to pay attention. And um, people talk about Ritalin and Adderall sometimes yeah. in in the same way and sort of like a very casual, in a very casual way. Um, but there's um, so let me make sure yeah. that just your listeners know mm-hmm. when. When they're coming to, when a student is going to a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist, the kinds of ways that that we've been trained to think about attentional um, deficit disorder mm-hmm. and sort of the diagnostic um, statistical manual, which is sort of the psychiatric dictionary, mm-hmm. uh, which looks at symptoms. And so, diagnostically, what you look for is first of all, for symptoms to be happening before a child was seven years old Mm -hmm. and that they happen in two different areas so that it's not just happening in school, but that it's happening in school and home. And then you, 
have a scale called the Vanderbilt scale that's often given to both the parent and to the school, which looks for symptoms like distractibility, impulsivity, hyperactivity. And again, there's a lot of those symptoms that could come from other things. If you've been traumatized, you might be distractible, you might be hypervigilant, mm-hmm. and you might be hyper, so you don't want to miss that. But then, so those are the, and usually you look for a family history because it is something that's fairly, it follows a genetic um, pattern. And um, that, and there is levels of acuity with attentional difficulties. So you're right, I think that, uh Alan Schwartz from the New York Times has done a lot of work on trying to highlight that sometimes stimulants are being given so that kids can have a competitive edge Mm -hmm. and get that A instead of that B. Or sometimes stimulants may be given to boys in school settings who are rambunctious, Mm -hmm. and that is developmentally appropriate, Mm -hmm. but is being seen as hyperactivity. And if we could just sort of delve into that a little bit, because that's... That was right on the tip of my mind is that, you know, a lot of what you, t- when you talk about distractibility and um, impulsivity, um, you know, when, when anyone who works with young kids, I mean, knows that, you know, all little kids are distractible, everybody's distractible and, and some more or less. So I wonder how much of um, the non-professional diagnosis, right? Like the sort of lay people's or even teachers decide, you know, saying, oh, I think this kid has ADD. Um, how much of that is just a misunderstanding of, of child development? Well, again, that's where I feel like I've been trying to find the middle road because there are situations where uh, the demands on a child mm-hmm. may, um, may create a diagnosis. Right. So if you have a child that is not getting recess isn't getting access to outside, mm-hmm. is being told that they have to sit for seven hours and take in um, di- you know, instruction that's mm-hmm. not interactive and not built on their own needs. Then mm-hmm. a child looks distractible and impulsive and hyperactive, and that's a created diagnosis. And you just that's, described that's, most public schools. That's an environment. Well, so maybe not most public schools. <laughs> But some public schools. Um, I, I think there's a lot of public schools that are making a major effort on on trying to engage kids. So I, I don't want to. Oh, I think they're. I think most are making a major yeah. effort. But I also think that recess has been dramatically right. decreased. Um, you know, outdoor time has been yes. decreased, and the amount of a sit and get, you know, sitting in your in yeah. your in your seat has been increased. So. That being said, yeah, there are some children, and I've been involved with diagnosing them who. Yes, you're going to have kids that get fidgety, but when you have a child with debilitating um, attentional difficulties, it's the kind of thing where uh, one administrator said to me, if you told that child that there was $100 on the bottom of the stairs, they wouldn't be able to focus long enough to get down the stairs to pick it up. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, It's a level of distractibility that doesn't allow them to function even when there's motivational things to be done. Uh, and Or it's the kind of kid who's in a fight from the get-go, mm-hmm. uh, and is going to maybe possibly be expelled or certainly have multiple days of suspension because their level of impulsivity is such that they misread kids' cues and go on the warpath. So, or it's a it's a child who constantly needs to be redirected or is running out of the classroom. So, I, what I guess I want to say is there are some parts of what is going on in our country which is about 
uh, um, boredom equaling distraction equaling um, ADD, which is really about educational reform. Mm -hmm. And what needs to happen is educational reform. And there is the other aspect, which is that there is a biological illness called ADD, where uh, complementary support around parent management and organizational strategies and a stimulant can be life-saving about how a child perceives themselves as a student. So that's... That's yeah, the... is you know I work with a lot of after school programs, and we we hear time and time again that there are uh, just anecdotal you know stories that you know the kid who's considered the troublemaker during the day is like the star of the after school yeah. program. And all, you know, in after school they get to choose what they're doing yes. a lot of times. They get to run around a lot yeah. more. Um, they get to do let's say sports or theater yeah. or arts or whatever, and that. Um, it's it's wonderful in one sense, right? Because yeah. those kids have the opportunity yes. of after school. Not all kids do, right. so it's sad for right. that. But of course, you know, some of us say, well, shouldn't we just make the whole experience one in which they can thrive? Um, and you know, have you know? I wonder. You know, I think about. I don't know if you're familiar with Waldorf schools. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, I know I know I've talked a little bit about Waldorf schools in the past on Please Speak Freely, but just you know much more meeting kids where they are, much more nature-based, a lot less sort of sitting in orderly rows and walking in orderly lines. Um, You know, and in this country, at least, certainly, um, you know, the the average income level of families at Waldorf School is, you know, much, much higher than in public schools. What you're highlighting is why I wrote the behavior code, because what... You know, our threshold in the U.S. for giving medication, there usually is a, a, not a wall between the doctor's office and the school, but the ability to have the dialogue with the school about knowing what kinds of interventions are being put in place yeah. doesn't often happen. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a time crunch. You know, it takes mm-hmm. time to be intimately familiar with how schools deliver. Mm-hmm. So, And you have teachers who often... I actually think teachers have mastered the those children who have straightforward attentional difficulties. They have teachers have figured out organizational strategies to be able to support those children. It's when you add in oppositional behavior or anxious behavior where things get murkier. And teachers will acknowledge that if you yeah. look at the research, the surveys talk about how um, teachers don't feel comfortable in those areas of behavioral difficulties and we are losing a lot of teachers uh, Mm -hmm. in because new teachers get discouraged they come in really idealistic and then they have all these great ideas with the waldorf and 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 yet they may not have some concrete things that they that would be useful when they run into challenging behavior so obviously you wrote a whole book about it um so there's a lot to say but um are, are there some sort of headlines that you can give for what's your approach to, you know, working, understanding and teaching those most challenging students and especially those with, with mental health challenges? Sure. So the bullets for what I would want people to take away from is one, the idea that behavior is communication. So that means that when you are looking at a child that's explosive, that you're trying to figure out what it is that they are um, trying to tell you. So mm-hmm. if you, for uh, uh, 
and then the second piece would be uh, we have a, we describe um, an approach called the FAIR plan. Everyone has acronyms in education, and mm-hmm. we had to do one too. Mm-hmm. And but it was really about the idea that many times teachers feel like it's not fair that these kids are taking so much time. And reality is that sometimes true, and that we have to be fair to that child to figure out how to design a school day that supports a child that may be oppositional or may be anxious. And the first thing the F stands for is for the function of the behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's a um, um, psychologist, Mark Durand, who came up with um, looking at behavior and he, it's sort of a checklist for a teacher and uh, it's um, the, the function of the behavior can be attention, escape, sensory and um, uh, tangible. So that means that, I mean, the tension's fairly easy. Although teachers miss a lot, and parents, the idea that negative attention Mm -hmm. is fast, efficient, and predictable. Yeah. And that if you throw a chair, you have the whole school Mm -hmm. surrounding you and you get lots of attention. Mm -hmm. And if you're a child who's been abused, that may be what you're used Mm -hmm. to. And so really highlighting catching kids being good Mm -hmm. would be an example of of thinking about um, attention and trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. Uh, Escape is if a kid rips up a a homework assignment and ends up getting sent to the principal's office or swears, then um, that ends up reinforcing for them that they got to escape the the thing that they didn't want to do. And Um, tangible basically is having trouble waiting for something and often can happen when you have kids with neglect. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about kids who people may be working with in after schools, kids with neglect Mm -hmm. may have a really hard time waiting because they want what they want when they want it. And they don't know if they're going to get it Mm -hmm. any other time. So they can get really aggressive. Sort of a desperate feeling. Getting what they need. So that's about the function. And then accommodations is sort of thinking about things like transitions and how we manage transitions. And, um, and then I is about interventions, uh, interactions. So single most important thing I think in being able to connect with kids is building a relationship with them mm-hmm. and how you approach a child and uh, make demands of them. And ex- just what you talked about, control choice. You can have the red chair, you can have the blue chair, but you're not, you have to sit in a chair can get yourself get yourself out of a lot of power struggles. So that's just a bullet. And mm-hmm. then R is the response. But what we talk about um, is that 90% of behavior is looking at what's happening before and figuring out how to manage it. Mm-hmm. And not just reacting to the behavior exactly. that, that happens. So you mentioned you have small kids. Yeah. Maybe you realize you go to the market. Every time you go to the market, your two-year-old is... is pulling everything off of the, probably not because you have a perfect two-year-old, <laughs> but um, I haven't met her, but I'm assuming, but you know, pulling everything off of the shells. Sure. Yeah. The, um, the thought would be, if you use the FAIR plan, is you'd think, okay, what's the function of the behavior? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's that um, she wants your attention, possibly, say you'd been away the whole day, mm-hmm. or maybe it's that uh, she's really, really hungry, mm-hmm. and you picked her up after daycare, mm-hmm. and this is all hypothetical, yeah, everybody. Sure. But you picked her up after daycare, and what's really going on is she's trying to communicate to you that I'm starved. Mm-hmm. So feeding her before you walk in to mm-hmm. grab stuff for dinner totally changes how she reacts walking mm-hmm. into the market. That's what I'm challenging schools to be 
really mindful about when mm-hmm. they're working with kids. So I you're think, not at the response where you're dragging yeah. the kid out of the supermarket screaming right. because you just spent 20 minutes going through the aisles trying to keep them from destroying. Right, but you sort of set that situation up in the first place. I think yeah. it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great example, too, because um, you know, I think I, we've all experienced going to the grocery store hungry. Right. And yeah. you know, you, coming home, why did I buy like, yeah. what, 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 three packages of cookies? You, know? um, and, you got out lucky. Yeah. I would have come out with eight. <laughs> but, but it's such preventative, sort of proactive behavior yeah. to say, oh, if yeah. I'm hungry, let me, yeah. let me yeah. eat, and then go to the grocery yeah. store and have a more sensible yeah. right. mindset. It also just gets back to, to just basic sort of Maslow and just the basic needs, just right. meeting your basic needs before you can hope to meet higher level needs. Um, one of the things I noticed about your approach to this is that you don't ignore how individual young people actually feel. And, but even so, we've been talking a lot about whatever kinds of um, supports and interventions as being about managing behavior so that class can proceed or so that um, kids can be successful in school so that they can focus and not get sent to the principal's office. But have you taken a look much about or at um, how the stimulants like Ritalin and, and Adderall and maybe some of the other medications too, how that changes young, young people's experiences? And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that came up is because you mentioned, well, maybe just give it to them during work hours, right? Yeah. Like, so they, they have it while they're at school, but they don't have to have it later in the day or in summers. And I, it, I, I think about that and I think, I wonder, I didn't experience any of that as a kid. Although my little stepbrother had, um, you know, all these medications at one time or another, mm-hmm. um, I believe, or at least some of them. Um, and, you know, I never really talked to him about what it felt like. What it, how, did, how did you feel differently when you were taking that? Yeah. I can only see, you know, oh, it's easier to deal with you. Yeah. Um, but so do, you, do we know yeah, much about that? Well, you're asking a profound question. So I have written about the meaning of medication for kids and, and, and for families. And again, this is, let me see if I can walk you through the different ways of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. So one thing is, if you are a child who is never on task mm-hmm. and the teacher is constantly having to reprimand you, then you, you might end up reacting by being the class clown. And maybe you'll grow up to be Seinfeld. God bless you. Mm-hmm. But you may also end up be coming, growing up with a sense that I'm a bad student and I don't, I don't really do school. And yet you're a brilliant kid. Mm-hmm. And if a stimulant allows you to stay on task enough that you can begin to acquire the basic skills you need so you can show us your brilliance, then I'm okay about a child. I think go for it. Parents and I would encourage a parent or a child to take a medication because the building blocks of who they see themselves are are being impacted by the disorder. But that being said, I would also say sometimes what you're doing is you're giving your you also want to teach kids replacement behaviors. So if you're an impulsive kid mm-hmm. and if you ran around the block or went to PE phys ed prior to school, and that allowed you to sit through class, or you learned some yoga stretches, or you learned about um, positive self-talk, or about how to think about space, times, object, people, which is sort of an acronym that sometimes Mm. with kids with ADD, that slows them down. Mm -hmm. Or you learned explicitly about reading the room when you walk into a classroom that you don't just barge in, and Mm -hmm. just typically what I do, barge in and kind of 
knock something down, but mm-hmm. that you want to slow yourself down. Mm-hmm. Those are critical things. And I think what you're highlighting is a child needs to learn skills to manage whatever it is that they may have that's problematic for them. So if it's around self-regulation and you don't want to just give a stimulant and call it a day, mm-hmm. you want to teach them skills that may support them. And, you know, sometimes the fancy word for it is executive functioning, but mm-hmm. the ability to organize yourself matures and you may, you know, there is a question about, yes, those people with true ADD often need to go on and have a stimulant for the rest of your life. But mm-hmm. then there's some people who quote unquote grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, did they happen to grow into an environment that allows them to be who they are right. and they're no longer have this diagnosis? Uh, you know, so, yeah, well, I'm also yeah. asking though, is, um, maybe I'm asking a little bit about other kinds of side effects that are more subtle than, um, than something like weight gain or loss. Yeah. Um, I know I've talked to friends who have been on antidepressants about the balance of, you know, the fact that they, they don't feel suicidal and they can get out of bed easier, but they also don't feel like making the art they used to make, you know, they, they're not yeah. as driven to like create. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a broad generalization, but I've heard people talk about it, you know, yeah, and, that's an age old question, whether the mental and, illness and when they're is, little kids, they, they don't yeah. have that self-awareness yeah. of like, does it, does it change? Are we changing who kids are? Uh, again, I think with appropriate medication, it's a, it's a risk and benefit yeah. analysis. Yeah. And that's a personal decision that every family and yeah. child makes mm-hmm. and with with a with a physician mm-hmm. and so i i'm hesitant to make generalizations right. and yet i think you're highlighting that some some people will worry that the personality of a child may be changed by being on a stimulant mm-hmm. my sense would be you're going to learn that fairly quickly you, mm-hmm. you know particularly with a stimulant it's a one you know two days you can see it now mm-hmm. some people who again with children who truly have ADD a parent will come back and they'll say oh my gosh it's like watching the windshield wipers finally get shut off so that they can see through the window because mm-hmm. they're just not buzzing so much yeah, yeah. but you ask a question that Kay Redfield Jameson has talked a lot about in terms of creativity and the mm-hmm. the interplay between creativity and mental illness and mm-hmm. you know the fact that say with bipolar disorder are people more creative because they have uh, this mood disorder that drives them to create fantastic art and you know uh, again if you're going to be dead which yeah. is a side effect a, a a scary aspect of bipolar disorder. You can't be creative if you're dead. So there are losses that happen and I never prescribe medication lightly. And I get that, uh, for, for kids and for families, it can sometimes seem as if the medication may be supplanting their identity Mm -hmm. and you, you, you have to kind of work those things through. And then sometimes you have people who say, oh my gosh, you know, I wasn't able to get out of bed. I couldn't concentrate. Yeah. I lost 20, 20 pounds. I uh, was late to school and missed, you know, three quarters of school. And on a small amount of medication, I'm able yeah. to, uh, to, to, to function in a way that will allow people to know who I am. Right. So, right. 
And and the other side of it, and you 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 mentioned an aspect of this earlier. There's there's the use of these medications to get ahead, right? So I was I was looking at a, a article on CNN.com from a couple of years ago called "Little People, Lots of Pills." Yeah, and um, it mentioned that. <laughs> that sounds like a eyeball grabber. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, it mentioned that some parents request medication because kids misbehave or get low grades or test scores, yeah. so they sort of go looking for, you know, they're screwing around in school or they're not doing as yeah. well as I'd like them to do. Could you, to yeah. the doctor, could you fix it? Um, and even faking a condition for their child in hopes of getting drugs for themselves. Yeah. Um, in addition, we, you know, you see articles and things So just to interrupt on, with that yeah, part, sure. I'm profoundly disturbed by that. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I teach a Harvard freshman seminar course, and some of my kids, when this whole uh, aspect came up about um, overprescribing stimulants, kids would say, yeah, you can go to the... Um, it's, I think it's changing because some of the work mm-hmm. that's been done by Alan Schwartz in the New York Times, but uh, it used to be you could fairly go into the college infirmary and you could say, I have um, trouble concentrating, and you could walk out with a stimulant. Um, and it's amazing to me because it's like... All of these and, kinds and, of symptoms, it's like everybody, doesn't and, everybody and have trouble concentrating? That, there's, there's a, you know, somewhat of a culture in some high schools and some colleges where yeah. if you have stimulants, you lend them to your friend or you sell them to your friends. Now, in my book, that's called drug dealing. Right. Uh, and I talk to my patients about uh, not filling a script. If it quote unquote gets lost, you're out of luck. But, you know... This is about relationships with your patients, too, and trust. And, um, you know, maybe I've been scammed over the years. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't feel comfortable prescribing medication so that kids can get uh, cognitive enhancement or a bump mm-hmm. in their grades. <laughs> it's uh, funny you say bump because they, they grind up the drugs it, and it, snort bumps of them. Well... Some of them, if, again, if you have concerns about someone yeah. um, doing that with medication, there are medications that you can prescribe where you can't. You can't. Oh, really? And, yeah. Okay. So, um, I imagine that th- this is actually a fairly small scale but high exposure kind of issue. Like it seems like you read these articles about wealthier kids in these prep schools snorting Adderall, but before taking tests and things like that. Um, but it seems like one of those issues that gets a lot of press attention, yeah. but isn't necessarily super widespread. Do we know anything about how I widespread I mean, I don't know about the percentages of yeah. kids snorting before taking uh, exams, but I certainly know there's, you know there's a concerning amount of kids who may take a stimulant for those longer tests because they think it's, they, they um, are hoping it will give them a competitive edge. And the question is, where does that stop? Exactly, yeah. um, and we've dealt with it in lots of different settings. I mean, mm-hmm. it's no surprise that it's seeping into cognitive or brain enhancement because you had steroids going rampant right. in um, school settings so that sure. people could lift more or run faster. Or And yeah. unfortunately, we're in a culture sometimes where, um, I mean, to me, it's a little bit fraudulent in, in yeah. some ways that you're... you're uh, um, you you feel that you have to be in the position that you have to um, to drug yourself in order to be acceptable, and you know, I, I don't, I don't. It's it's un, unnerving, upsetting, and and not the place for medications to be used to 
vulnerable populations where that kind of judgment's mm-hmm. being made. Well, it's it's interesting too because there's a whole there's a positive um, spin on this, which is put on by like the the idea of, of life hacking. I don't know if you've heard that expression, no, I don't. but it, the idea of life hacking is like um, you know using data to figure out ways that you can improve your effectiveness in life. So whether that's um, wearing a Fitbit, um, yeah. you know, sensor to, I don't know, even know what it does about calorie burning and <laughs> how much you walk yeah. and it's connected to an app that shows you, yeah. you know, what to eat in order to, um, or, um, you know, uh, sometimes, oftentimes it's legal, naturopathic and other yeah. sorts of things that you can get that will help you to, perform better Bigger, better um, exactly <laughs> um and you know whether it's legal or illegal um you know to get the medications or to get thing you know herbal things yeah. or whatever but the idea is you know well if you know what what's the 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 way that i can do the absolute best on this whether mm-hmm. it's a test or it's a you know writing a book or climbing a mountain and there's you know there's folks who are um, I believe actually well-meaning and a lot of the, the, the stuff they talk about is interesting. Tim Ferriss is the four hour work week guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, he, ta- he, he's a big life hacker, you know, um, I don't know if he uses the expression or not, but he's definitely, um, and, uh, there's a, there's another guy whose name escapes me right now who was on TV and has a podcast where anyway, um, you know, so there's, there's a positive spin on this. It's, it's definitely leaning towards the like, you know, cyborg sort of version of our future. You know, the Google well, Glass and everything. You know, I'm else. a marathon runner. Uh-huh. So I like the idea of endurance and discipline. Yeah. And some people may say that a stimulant makes them have the discipline and be able to sit down and do it. But I certainly think there is uh, tremendous satisfaction that comes from having discipline and intrinsic motivation and being able to have to develop the inner resources to be able to do that. Yeah. Whether and um and I hope that's what often those of us who work with young children are trying to cultivate yeah. is for them to be able to uh be in an environment that supports that. So if for example uh, one of the things that happens is that a child has na- what what I, what some cognitive behavioral therapists call negative self-talk, where they just talk trash to themselves and they're um, or adults for that matter, but mm-hmm. but that are constantly saying there's no way I can do X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. unless I harm my body or do mm-hmm. it. Uh, that they're able to learn ways of being able to actually switch that. Um, that sometimes they talk about changing the channel, and yeah. uh, and I think there are thing there are ways that we can support teachers and youth workers around even just some simple things. So they're called thinking traps where, uh, um, again, whether it's a child or an adult, you can end up doing things like thinking on the downside or catastrophizing or having um, magnifying something that's bad Mm -hmm. and being able to, that's the interaction part of being able to kind of recognize that with a child and just Labeling it actually can be really helpful for a child. And then thinking with them about what's the evidence really that X, you know. And um, so I also think that um, a lot of our um, kids and don't know much about how to, how to calm themselves. 
So having something, if you're in a preschool or if you're in an after-school program that's mm-hmm. like a calming box, which yeah. is a, something for elementary school kids where you have a um, things that they might put in that box that would help them slow things down when they mm-hmm. were feeling upset, whether mm-hmm. it's a picture of someone that they really like or silly putty mm-hmm. or um, a... Uh, I don't know the, what the professional word is, a cootie catcher that, that has jokes on it that mm-hmm. they could, some things that they could, some... <laughs> is there a professional word? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> some form of distraction yeah. that helps them is yeah. really useful. Uh-huh. I th- so I, I guess we can go down the road of the fact that we're screwed because society has basically decided that medication is the way to cure all problems. And personally, I find that really upsetting and, and don't want that to happen. But also say, well, what can we do as uh, teachers and youth workers, no matter what's happening on the medication side, to support our kids and give them the tools that they need yeah. to be able to be, so, to be healthy? Yeah. yeah. So that's what I was trying to do yeah. in the behavior code, and that's what I'm trying to do. Even just talking with you today, right. say there are ways that we can um, uh, can build resources in mm-hmm. our children and they deserve it. Yeah. So like for a while I was spending a lot of time talking about this guy, Dan Hughes. He has an acronym, which I think is really useful in terms of interaction where he talks about pace mm-hmm. and it's this idea of playfulness, pause, acceptance, curiosity, and empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's saying when you're about to get into a knockdown drag down with a kid, step back for a moment mm-hmm. and Press the pause button. I'd say for any adult who has a teenager, we all get that. Yeah. And then the playfulness part is really counterintuitive because usually when you're about to get in a struggle, that's not the time you want to be playful. Now, playful is tough because it's a line between shaming when you're being playful and mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But my guess is when you're talking about some of the youth workers and mm-hmm. the fact that they don't get in struggles with their um, with their students, mm-hmm. it's because that is... a necessarily structured as a more playful environment where humor is kind of easily readily available. And teachers that I've worked with that are knock-your-socks-off teachers get that too. And they may have, say, for a kid that sort of needs to be uh, the center of attention, has trouble joining, doesn't really read the room, they may have that person um, tell a joke Mm as sort of the start off for the day, yeah. or sometimes they may have a break with an activity where they'll have a round basket of jokes that kids can pull and mm-hmm. they can sort of use that as a, as a break starter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I think that the whole aspect of acceptance with a child is about sometimes kids are going to be really, are going to say outrageous things or do outrageous things. And that's not acceptable. But the emotion behind it, the fact that they may be super angry or really upset about X, Y, and Z, that part, if you can kind of join around that, then you can set the limits. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if you don't kind of acknowledge whatever the feeling is behind it, Mm -hmm. they'll keep escalating Mm -hmm. to let you know how Mm -hmm. mad they are. Mm -hmm. So those are just the kind of things I I guess I want us to, to, to feel empowered yeah. as adults yeah. to be able to uh, scaffold our kids and support our kids in yeah. ways that can be really useful. Mm-hmm. And and I know we're going to run out of time, but I, I got to ask, I got to shift gears 
because I'm going to kick myself if I don't okay. come back to this. Um, you just said that you know the the idea that we're we're becoming a society where you know drugs are the quick fix or the yeah. or the answer to everything. In the comments section of your Washington Post article, there was someone who left a three word comment, which was "follow the money." Ah, yes, and, I saw that. You know, we've we've all seen all the um, you know direct to market you know yeah. pharmaceutical ads that are on commercials and in you know uh, subways and everything else. Um, and you know, I don't know all the numbers, but certainly pharmaceutical companies rake in huge revenues. Yeah. Um, and I should say also do things that are um, can be fairly miraculous too yeah. in terms of some of the drugs that they've come up with. Um, so I don't want to put I don't want to put it in black and white terms necessarily. But um, where are the the pressures coming on no, doctors? No, I I, to... I I I I I think follow the money is an important one. Yeah. The reality is that uh, doctors often are not reimbursed as much if they do therapeutic interventions mm. and then if they do uh, a medication management. So I have been fortunate enough to work in a with a school district that allows me to do careful diagnostic assessments and that we do need a shift in uh, in making sure that we have trained enough um, clinicians to be able to do careful diagnostic assessments, that we have access to resources for children who do have behavioral disorders and need to have support. Uh, we need to amplify how we provide for families in terms of flexible models. So some families can't leave work once a week to come and get instructed on how to do mm-hmm. um, various techniques. We need to support teachers in the kind of trainings that they have so that they can make interventions with uh, children where they're not being asked to be clinicians, but there are some critical steps that they need to be able to do to support kids. And um, um, <laughs> I'd say don't follow the money, follow my the behavior code. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. That's, that's just it's a good kidding. way to wrap it back up with a plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but, no. Uh, but if anybody does have further questions or wants yeah. to continue the uh, conversation, you certainly can get a hold of me through my website, uh, which is Nancy Rappaport, uh, um, W. R-A-P-P-A-P-O-R-T, and I'd be happy to um, think more about these difficult suggestions. Great. Difficult problems. Great. Thank you. And and we'll have all that information and the links and everything up on our page. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it.